this audience is digitally native. And that's a fun buzzword that everyone throws around, but they're not just turning on ABC and saying, hey, what's going on today, right? They are watching all of the over-the-top channels, the OTT platforms, they're watching Twitch, they're watching YouTube. This is what they know. They want to be able to interact and engage with their pro athletes. You're listening to Sports Tech Feed, the global sports technology podcast. Hello and welcome to Sports Tech Feed. I'm your host, Thomas Loams. Great to have you join us again this week. On today's show, we're discussing one industry sector that's inadvertently benefited from the shutdown in global sporting leagues and the increasing number of stay-at-home and social distancing orders. I'm, of course, speaking about eSports, which for many people has stepped into the void left by traditional sports. Just some stats to back that up. Twitch, the leading live streaming platform for gamers, went from 982 million hours watched in February to over 1.1 billion hours in March, an impressive 20% increase. This shift, or rather pivot, from coverage of traditional sports to eSports is best illustrated in ESPN's recent self-styled eSports day, which featured 12 hours of non-stop eSports coverage. That included a Formula 1 eSports virtual Grand Prix with actual F1 drivers behind the simulated wheel, as well as a heavily anticipated NBA 2K tournament, which brought 16 NBA players participating in a 16-bracket event of the popular basketball simulator. So some very interesting cross-pollination there between traditional and esports. And that's where the continued upward trajectory of esports in the face of the coronavirus presents a unique opportunity for stakeholders in traditional sports, including the teams themselves, the players, of course the fans, but also the partner brands and the media covering it. So for today's episode, I thought it would be a perfect opportunity to revisit the panel discussion we hosted last year on the investment, partnership and growth opportunities in esports. This was recorded live at the Sports Tech World Series conference in the US, in Dallas, at the end of last year. So still very current, still very interesting stuff. And it's an absolutely stacked panel with experts representing the full breadth of the esports ecosystem. From Riot Games, we have Matt Archambault, Head of Partnerships and Business Development North America. If you're not sure who Riot Games are, you've probably heard of League of Legends, one of the most popular esports titles of all time. Representing the esports franchise, so the team side, we have Greg Stangle, Chief Revenue Officer of Misfits Gaming. Then on the competition operator side, including live events, we have Justin Varghese, North America Marketing Manager for DreamHack. And tying all together, we have our fantastic moderator, Nicola Peugeot, co-founder of the StoryMob. Uh, they're an esports communication and PR consultancy. So wrapping that all up together and, and carrying the narrative through. In case you missed it, we had a great episode last week with Julian Moore from Mills and Reeve. He was discussing all of the potential legal impacts from a lot of these sporting team cancellations, but also had some really good advice for startups uh, trying to grow and, and kind of survive through this time. So highly recommend if you check that episode out. As always, if you have any comments, uh, feedback, uh, guest suggestions, topics that you want to hear, I'm really interested to hear what you, the listener, would like to hear um, kind of unpacked um, during this this all shutdown and these strange times so please reach out thomas at sportstechworldseries.com you can also go on the website sportstechfeed.com there you'll find show notes and more episodes uh, and also bios from uh, all our panelists today and so for now over to nicola Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for joining us to have a chat about esports. Congratulations for stumbling into the esports side of the fence. 
We appreciate you being here. Um, as you mentioned, my name is Nicola Piggott. I am co-founder of The Story Mob. We are a communications consultancy focused solely on esports. I'm going to introduce each of the gentlemen to my left, and then I'll get them to, to introduce themselves in a little bit more detail. Uh, so here we have... Um, Right here we have Greg Stangle, who's the Chief Revenue Officer for Misfits Gaming. Um, we have Matt Archambault, who's the Head of Partnerships and Business Development for North America at Riot Games, my former uh, employer. And uh, right on the end, we have Justin Varghese. Did I get it? You right, got it. Going? Perfect. Amazing. Nailed it. Um, who is um, North American Marketing Manager for DreamHack. So I'll get each of them to give you a quick couple of minutes on, on their role um, and their organization. How's everyone doing? Esports. Let's get excited for esports. <laughs> Woo! I'm actually, <laughs> I'm actually relatively new to the esports business. Um, so my name is Greg Stangle. Uh, I'm the Chief Revenue Officer of Misfits Gaming. Uh, I've uh, been with the organization three months. Prior to that, I was with Fox uh, for two years. I was with CAA uh, in our sports practice before that for eight years. Uh, we have some CAA people in the audience, which is always great. <laughs> if you guys don't know Alexa Cook, by the way, you need to meet Alexa Cook. She's based, she's the CAA person in Dallas. She's great. She's got all of her, she's awesome. I hired Alexa <laughs> about 10 years ago. Uh, before, <laughs> so then before CAA, I was with uh, the New York Mets, the baseball team, and worked on the new stadium, uh, City Field, and helped launch their regional sports network. Uh, and before that, I was with the National Hockey League for five years, so dating myself quite a bit. And I will tell you the one thing about being in esports, everyone is younger than me. <laughs> and uh, so you got to stay quick. So that's my background. Thanks, Greg. All right, so my name is Matt Archambault. I have been with Riot for just over a year now. It is my job, very simply, to monetize uh, our esports and our partnerships platforms within North America. Um, I would say that my background is a little bit different than other people who have come into esports, simply because I've come from the traditional media agency side and then the traditional publisher side. So after working in a number of agencies, the Omnicoms and WPPs of the world, I then worked for Newsweek and the BBC for quite a long time. So I've come from really that world. I've always loved playing video games. I've always loved sports. I went to a Big East school, so I've been obsessed with college basketball since those days and since prior to. And this is actually a perfect marriage of all of those. And I would also say that most of the people at Riot um, are significantly younger than I am as well. So. <laughs> Hey, Justin Varghese. Uh, I handle marketing in North America for DreamHack, and I'd like to say that I am the median demographic of ages at my company. It's fantastic. Um, so I've been working in the esports space actually since 2014. When I started off, it was super grassroots. I mean, I was covering Smash Brothers in the back of a tiny game store, uh, making less than minimum wage. Um, and very fortunately, kind of as this industry, thanks to some of the great work that's been done by Matt and his team and so many other people, um, what we've seen over these last couple of years really is just an explosion of growth, especially here state-wise. And um, I was fortunate enough uh, to be scooped up by DreamHack at the start of this year. Uh, really, my role is all about just building DreamHack's brand and notoriety throughout the United States. We have a global distributed team that puts on about 15 shows in nine different countries with um, an estimated annual attendance of about 400,000 this year. Um, so we're growing a lot. Um, really, my big objective more than anything else is 
when we're talking long-term, I'm not really interested in taking over convention centers. I really want TreeMac to have more of a South by kind of feel where it takes over an entire city. Um, obviously big words and uh, hopefully strategy will make it so that that's gonna align in the next three to five years or so. But I mean, with the rate that everything is growing and with the, uh, the number of new partners that have entered into the space, it really does feel more and more realistic every single day. Okay, so obviously we'll make time for questions at the end, but just out of interest, how many folks in the room would consider themselves familiar with esports? All right. Better than most rooms. That's, yeah, that's, that's a good room. Who's, who's been to an esports event? Anyone? Wow. Well, congratulations to everybody here. Right, thank you. Great. Yes. So, yes, thank you for supporting what we do. Appreciate it. Um, so, all right, with, with that level of hardcore familiarity, I don't feel like we need to go too basic, but what might be helpful, guys, um, and this is an open question to, to all of the panelists, is to give us an idea about what the eSports fan looks like. How, how do you guys feel like they differ from traditional sports fans? What are the similarities and what are the areas where, that we're still finding out about? And uh, Matt, maybe we can start with you for the League of Legends audience. Sure. So I think there's, there's really two ways to look at this. In one sense, the esports fan is not unlike the traditional sports fan, right? I think these, this myth that somebody who likes gaming and competitive gaming is a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old who sits in a basement and eats bad food and never sees the light of day that is very quickly dissipating. Um, and I know everyone's laughing and I like that, but that generally seems to be the uh, pretty much where you start uh, every single day uh, in this business. So in that sense, you have a very rabid fan base, right? Between what we do when we go out with League of Legends tournaments, uh, here in the, in the US, I represent the LCS, which is a North American league. We, do, we have our home shows in LA at our arena that have 500 people coming every single weekend. We have our road shows where we went to St. Louis uh, for our spring split. We, we just came back from Little Caesars Arena in Detroit for our summer split. We had 17,000 people come through the doors in two days. We had a fan day that we opened up three hours before we even opened Little Caesars Arena doors and we had 4,500 people lined up from eight o'clock in the morning just trying to get in and walk around and just be around everyone. And with what's been going on at DreamHack 2, you see people travel. They will come from all over the place. They wanna be there. It's really a safe space. So you see the same sense of whether or not that's fans just screaming. I mean, merch jerseys are kind of crazy in terms of what people will buy and getting, getting um, uh, just signatures on everything that you can do. You know, beyond that, cosplay is a huge thing within the community. You know, the same way that face painting, cosplay, it's just, it's just what people do. And that safe space, that safe community where people want to just come out and, and enjoy that. I think the, the difference, though, is that this audience is digitally native. And that's a fun buzzword that everyone throws around. But they're not just turning on ABC and saying, hey, what's going on today, right? They are watching all of the over-the-top channels, the OTT platforms. They're watching Twitch. They're watching YouTube. This is what they know. They want to be able to interact and engage with their pro athletes. If you look at um, you know, some of the Misfits pros, right, when they're on Twitch, there are fans that are not only donating to them, but they're actually engaging and talking to them, and the pros are talking back, right? You don't see that in traditional sports. It's become much more gated because they're also more established. Um, we've been doing esports for nine years. We're not the NFL. We haven't been doing it for 100 years, but our goal is that we will eventually get to that level. Uh, so I think you know, there are differences, but at the same time, there's, there's a lot more similarities than most people would think. That was very well put. I, I think for... I think, I, I'm gonna learn something today. Um, from my perspective, my organization, uh, I work for essentially team ownerships, uh, team ownership group that has 
a team in League of Legends in Europe, which is called the LEC, and that's Misfits Gaming. And that audience is a little bit more um, familiar and mature with the sport in general. Um, but our approach and our strategy for my company uh, is to invest across multiple different titles. So in addition to the LEC team with Misfits Gaming, we've invested with Activision Blizzard um, in Overwatch, and we just had the uh, Overwatch uh, grand finale was this past weekend in Philadelphia, and all the numbers are, are, are trending the right way. You hear the word growth a lot in esports. There's not many places in esports where you see the arrow going the wrong way. Everything's going up. Um, so we have, uh, we have an Overwatch team called the Florida Mayhem, and we're based in South Florida, so my office is, is in Boca Raton. Uh, and then we've actually um, just acquired a second Activision Blizzard title uh, in their Call of Duty franchise. And learning about that versus Overwatch versus um, League of Legends and LEC and then all the other different games that, that our company touches, it, it, it really is amazing to see. They, they all skew a little different, but the one common theme, they're in, the fan base is incredibly passionate and incredibly engaged. We, we use the word engagement a lot in our business um, because the second one of our guys goes on and streams, the second he says hello, everyone's like tuning in. It's, it's a really amazing, amazing thing. So uh, it's a little different than traditional sports where our product is really relevant 365, 24-7. And, uh, and that's a great thing, especially in my role. So my role, I didn't, I didn't mention, so I'm out in the marketplace trying to find brands to invest in my company. And um, so far, so good. It's incredible. <laughs> the, the amount of interest from the brand community in our sport is, is staggering. Um, it's a little bit of the wild, wild west because yeah. things are happening so quickly. So structure is important. Um, and one of the reasons I was recruited into the role was just based on my experience on the traditional side. Um, and it's been, uh, it's been a lot of work, but it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I think you both really summarized it very well. The only thing that I'd really add when we're talking about the traditional esports fan is one word, vocal. If you're doing something right, they'll probably let you know. If you're doing something wrong, they'll definitely let you know. Um, and that makes it so that it's really easy, especially from a feedback perspective, to, hey, try something out. If it works out, great. See what, what you can do to make it even better. And if it doesn't really work out as well, that gives you an idea on how to pivot, or if not necessarily to pivot, maybe to reintroduce it at a different time, because the market might just not be ready. The only other point that I'll add to all of that is I feel like whenever you have general marketing people kind of talking about esports as a whole, they just lump it all as just 18 to 25, but they don't recognize that you know, the demos that Matt and his, and his team sees with, say, League of Legends is very different from the demos that, say, watch Street Fighter, right? And so within these different sub-demographics, I'd say there are unique activations and unique marketing plays that really resonate with your specific brand. So as a brand, what you're really looking to do is dive deep, you know, get, your, get yourself in the trenches themselves and figure out, okay, what are the specific core demos that I'm looking to attract within that 1825 sub and what products align with whatever broadcast I'm trying to be entangled with or whatever scenes I'm trying to create activations within. I would just say most brands I don't think are even taking that deep yeah. Peel of the onion. I think all they want to know is that they're reaching this this new audience that has been so difficult to reach. Oh yeah, that's what that's what our message has been, and, and that's I think a lot of the CMOS out there in, in terms of you know they're, they all the CMOS know that they need to take the meeting on esports. <laughs> I'm not sure we get their attention enough yet to to really understand how to segment it. Right. That'll come. Usually when they have a kid who's a League of Legends <laughs> fan. Right? 
Normally, normally when the magic happens. All right, so I mean, here we are, right, in a in a traditional sports locker room, uh, welcomed in, and traditional sports um, investing and being interested in esports has really grown over the last couple of years. Um, Greg, I know you guys have a partnership with the Miami Heat, um, and Matt uh, and uh, uh, and Justin, you guys see multiple. Um, traditional sports coming in to invest either in leagues or as a tournament organizer. Um, it feels like, you know, there's, there's such a groundswell there. Um, what do you guys think about when it comes to opportunities for traditional sports to, you know, to gain a foothold in this world? Are there still opportunities out there? Yeah, um, absolutely. I think that it's not one of those things where the well is now dry and everybody's locked out of it. I think that there's still a ton of opportunities for sports teams to come in and, and, figure out ways where they can leverage it. The, the one thing that I will say, though, is I feel like, especially due to the rapid number of e-gaming consultants that I see on LinkedIn these days, um, a lot of people tend to view, for some reason, especially people who aren't actually working in the space, that eSports is like this cure-all, right? And if, all, if you have like a, a, a sports team that, say, doesn't attract younger demographics, boom, just slap some eSports on that baby, and all of a sudden, the kids will come crawling. And that's not really how it works, right? The reality is that there's still an opportunity to get involved, but it has to be part of a larger marketing vehicle and a larger marketing engine as a whole. It's got to be like a very well thought out piece around that, right? Um, there's little things a team can obviously do. I think that, um, I think it's the Minnesota Twins, if I remember correctly, their pitcher plays Fortnite fairly consistently, say, with like Tim the Tatman, Ninja, et cetera. And it's one of those things where you can see some of that transfer into eyeballs. But that alone is not enough, right? It's more so understanding, OK, we want to get involved here, but we also want to do Y and Z to complement X. Please be clear about the fact, by the way, that your e-gaming reference was a joke. Yes, 100%. Okay. Jesus. Well, actually, my LinkedIn invite box is a graveyard of e-gaming consultants. Oof. I'm not going to lie. It's, it's rough. Yikes. It's rough. Cyber athletes, cyber Jesus sports. Jesus Christ. The e-big-g the e <laughs> gaming? Christ, I can't. I actually can't. <laughs> Um, what, Matt, what about you? How do you see um, leagues and, and teams interacting with traditional sports? Um, sorry, it's my fault. I don't know if I can follow that up. Oh, um, <laughs> good luck. So, <laughs> thanks. Uh, so our, our league, um, LCS, and actually, so just to take a, taking a quick step back, so League of Legends, from a, a global perspective, our, our ecosystem is large enough that we actually have 12 regional leagues, right? So there's a lot of other publishers out there, and they're, they're doing a really good job of what they're doing. They have a singular global league. Um, we're actually set up where our communities have been able to structure all of those regional leagues, and they roughly average 10 teams per league, right? So looking specifically at our LCS, which is our league here, we went to a franchise model about a year ago, a little, little over a year ago now because our season's done. Um, well, world is going on, but separate story. But uh, if I look at it, we actually have investment from, so the Houston Rockets are invested, the 76ers are invested, the Golden State Warriors, Michael Jordan's an investor, Drake's an investor, Cavaliers, the Bucks, pretty much you name it, there's an NBA uh, owner somewhere in the room, right? So for us, we've actually seen a lot of, we, we, we use that in a, 
in a really strong way by being able to have our owners meetings or our governors meetings and sit down and learn from them. Like what has worked with the NBA? What has worked? Uh, Madison Square Garden is also an investor. So we can say what's working or not working with the Rangers? Um, what's working or not working with the Knicks, right? What's working or not working with the Liberty? So we're able to actually have those discussions with them and feed off of it. We can also then tweak that for the world that we live in, which is more digital in nature. So I think you continue to see additional investment into it. There's a sense of diversification for a lot of these NBA teams, right, and these NBA owners in, in general. Um, NFL as well is getting into it, um, the Washington Capitals, et cetera. So like, you can, you can see a lot of that, which is, which is strong. But I think for us, it's all about trying to, as a league, build off of what these other leagues have done, learn what not to do, and then also learn what actually is working and how we can continue to drive forward. From our side, we have investments from both uh, the Miami Heat and the Orlando Magic, mm -hmm. and their NBA 2K franchises are actually in our asset mix when we go to market and, and position our uh, organization to brands. And quite frankly, the guys uh, at the clubs, they, they love that because uh, to sell the NBA 2K product from a club level locally in Florida, um, they have other inventory that's quite quite frankly, a lot more expensive that they need to sell. Um, so by adding in a, um, some of the more mainstream eSports titles, if you guys can follow with, with our assets, and it's a weird thing to say, but um, they, they, th those two clubs, um, you know, it's a great partnership because they invest, you know, they keep the, help, keep the lights on with our organization, and then we in turn help monetize their assets. Mm -hmm. So then, um, when we talk about brand investment in in uh, esports specifically, obviously there's a ton of brands now uh, looking to you know get hold of that juicy audience. Um, and even over the last couple of months, we've had a lot of announcements. Uh, Riot, for example, just announced a partnership with Louis Vuitton um, in the upcoming World Championship, which is going to be held in Paris. So, what do we think that we, as an industry, offer traditional brands um, over and above what they can expect from their traditional sports properties? I think it's just a way for them to stay relevant and young. You look at a lot of businesses right now are, are struggling with, um, you know, some of these insurance companies too. Their their customer base, the, the generations are um, are getting older, and they have to they have to invest in the future. It's pretty easy. It's a pretty simple thing. And, and I think um, the Louis Vuitton deal is a fantastic example of, of the power of our business and the digital revolution and how technology is really changing. I mean, who would have thought that brand would be in, in play with, with your title? And it's pretty incredible. So I think you're going to see a lot more, um, more non-endemic brands and categories play in our space. Uh, you know, the price points, too, compared to what, when I was at Fox and I was on the other end of the spectrum, Know, a Super Bowl advertisement for 30 seconds costs $4 million. To spend $4 million in, uh, on the franchise level with us uh, would be monumental. So the, the cost of entry, relatively speaking, for some of these non-endemic brands, it's peanuts. And they just need the right justification around why this makes sense. But it's not as easy as it sounds. Really, it still it still takes a lot, and I think we're still in the very early days of telling brands and explaining to brands why it makes sense. Adding on to that, I think you know we this business is getting more mature, right? So people still tend to think that esports has been around for a year and a half or two years. Um, they think, as I've had, I was telling these guys earlier, I had a conversation with someone the other day that Ninja is not an esport. 
That doesn't even make sense. Um, but <laughs> I had to sit down and try and unpack what that means in someone's minds, right? Um, but you know, as we look at doing this, for us, we've been lucky enough because of the, the scale of League of Legends, we've been doing this for nine years, right? We've been running esports tournaments for nine years. So this is not something that is a flash in the pan. DreamHack's been around for- 25 years. All right, 25 years. So much longer than even myself. Um, so beyond that though, I think one of the things that's helped as the business gets more mature is it's finding a consistent metric, right? Because you've had the single source of truth effectively be the publishers. And whether or not you're talking about Riot or you're talking about Activision Blizzard or Epic or Valve or whoever you happen to be talking about, Supercell, et cetera, everyone's effectively coming out with their own sense of, here's an impression or here's a view. And that's great for some of the early adopters that, you know, to Greg's point, I need to stay relevant, I need to get in, so here's some money, let me go do that real quick. But as you start to get to that level of maturity where you have auto brands coming on board, we signed Honda earlier this year, Louis Vuitton, uh, as you start to work with these brands, they still need to verify and justify the investment. Whether or not it's a dollar or a hundred million dollars, someone along the lines has to sit down and say, why am I doing this and what's the validity of it? And I know that you know, in general, and I think if you look at esports, you look at leagues, we're 90% 18 to 34 year olds, right? If I look just at traditional sports leagues, all sports leagues in this country, I'm the third most watched league in this, you know, in, in the US, right? So esports is, in a fun way, it's the biggest kept secret that everybody knows about. Because people that know about it, love it, everyone else thinks it doesn't exist. So by us aligning ourselves with Nielsen, with getting on board, like we've now, we're working on AMA, which is an average minute audience, which is something that you can actually use to say, how does this compare to the NBA? Right? How does this compare to the NFL? How does this compare to the MLS? You know, what are we looking at? That actually sets the playing field in a much safer space for people to be able to justify why they're spending one dollar or not the other way. So, yeah. and, and all that, especially those kinds of investments, I think with Nielsen and everything like that, um, also stuff that we're doing on the DreamHack side of things, is really important because it's one thing to have an investment year one. But you have to also look forward to those renewals too, right? I think that sort of stuff is really important in making sure that the brands that are taking a chance on this space have and can really see that ROI and we have the right data to present to them that is to some degree standardized to what they're typically seeing. The other thing that I want to talk about when we're talking about value within investing in esports itself is that I think that it's still at the point where if a brand jumps in to say be a primary sponsor of a team, it would significantly move the needle, right? So if Jack in the Box is like, hey, we're now the, the primary partner of the Dallas Cowboys, it's not really gonna do anything for Jack in the Box's sales, but you contrast that with what happens, say, to the Dallas Fuel, right? And all of a sudden, my timeline gets flooded with people being like, I hate Jack in the Box, but I ordered 15 tacos anyways, right? Like, it, it's that sort of stuff that I think is very powerful because, again, it goes back to the genetic makeup of an esports fan, right? They're very vocal, they're very supportive. When things work, they'll tell you. When things don't work, they'll also be quick to tell you that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, sorry, just the, the validation side to what you said, it, it's still very unique and it is still, at, we're still at that level in esports right now, regardless of whether we've been doing it for 25 years, nine years, or two years, where when brands come in that are non-endemic, or I like to say endemic adjacent, right, when they come on board, the pros, everyone, they just, they get this sense of like, hey, mom and dad, look, what I'm doing is actually like true, right? I mean, I can tell you that our average player makes $350,000 a year. Most people will say, stop it and go study and become a doctor. Like, well, you can actually have a pretty good career 
playing esports, right? Um, so I think that validity there, and a quick story at our all-star event last year in Vegas, MasterCard had just come on board, and I was actually watching the pros walk around and smile and like laughing. All they did was do a little like party area up top, a VIP area for them to get free wine and beer. And these guys are walking around like I've made it. Like I've literally achieved, I've won the Super Bowl, I've won the NCAA championship. Like this is my dream. Not only did I get a chance to come to the All-Star game, but I now get a chance to sit here because MasterCard's on my shirt. And you know, that was all they needed to do. And it was, it was really amazing to see that. So talking about events, that's obviously another point of comparison, right? What does an esports fan experience on the ground look like as versus a traditional fan? Um, so, and, and Justin, maybe we can start with you from a from a um, event standpoint. And Greg, I'd also like to hear what the team thinks of when they think of sort of fan experience. But you know, how how does how do you want a esports fan visiting a DreamHack event? What do you want their experience to be like as versus a fan who's a season ticket holder of? Uh, Dallas FC, I want to say where we are. Dallas. Okay, sorry, apologies. Uh, but yeah, how, how do you want how do you want the the esports fan experience to be unique? Well, the biggest feeling that I want an esports fan to leave with is connected more than anything else. I think when you think about traditional sports, for instance, for you to meet LeBron James, let alone watch him practice, is near impossible. And yet, when you're talking about athletes within our space. The beauty is that not only can you watch them you know, practice to some degree with them streaming on Twitch and things like that, but when you come to an event like ours, it's not really out of the question for you to not only you know, see somebody on the stage, but actually get to meet them, pick their brain for a couple minutes, right? Those kinds of experiences are so rare in a traditional sports perspective, and if they are offered at all, it's at such a ludicrous premium that most people can't even afford to do that, right? Um, I think the one thing that esports does is that it creates that level of accessibility, right? Where you can look at someone and, and even as they're walking through you, through the crowd, through where you're sitting, to get to the stage, for that moment you have this feeling where it's like, you know, it's not that far off for me either. Or for a minute you feel like you're in their shoes and you can understand them and relate to them so much more than maybe you can as traditional sports athlete. Will that change, especially with how the models are going? I'm not sure, but that's one thing that I know is very important to us at DreamHack is making sure that that kind of community vibe and that feeling never disappears because at the end of the day, I think that's one of the core experiences that our event really is selling beyond the aspect of watching people compete for like hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars. Um, Greg, what about from a team aspect? Like, what when you're thinking about partnering with brands or, or, or partners, what do you want those experiences to be like? Well, the fan experience for our organization, for the most part, has lived digitally uh, through our content and through our engagement, uh, social media. But next year will be the first time that the Overwatch League is moving to a um, a format that's more like traditional sports. So we are the uh, the Florida Mayhem. We're going to have two home matches across two weekends. One, one match is going to be in Orlando, one's going to be in Miami. So we're very much still building our fan base and from a grassroots perspective in its early days. Uh, we've, we've done some watch party programs and we've done um, you know, player appearances and, and it's all still very, uh, very early, early days. And I think um, when you think about the fan experience, it, it really, the, the whole concept of how does the live experience really elevate the overall offering for a brand? 
and the assets that we're now selling for those um, for those live events compared to the assets that we we didn't have those previously, um, it's starting to look more like a traditional sports uh, sponsorship model. There's signage, there's tickets, there's um, you know promotions. So there there's you know one to one marketing with you know tabling outside. So it opens up a whole new level of um, of, of categories and brands that would want to get involved. And I think that's that's really where the future, uh, I think the excitement and the growth and all everything you're reading about, the fact that this is now becoming a live spectator event, um, it's, it's really, it's the reason I'm sitting here. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's the future of the sports, how, it's how the clubs are gonna make money. Mm-hmm. Um, Matt, maybe you could talk a little bit about how um, Riot looks to partner with host cities particularly. Um, we've never done an event here in Dallas, as far as I'm aware. We have not. We uh, might, but we have not. <laughs> but uh, I know that you guys are uh, already talking as to finals uh, next year and how you want to meaningfully partner with with host cities. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think one other thing before I jump into that that I'd say just from, from the publisher side of things um, beyond a, a dream hack and a team, since the game is our IP, Anytime we put on an event, beyond just the community and the connectivity and the access that we're providing, it's really us also trying to feel humble because it's our player base that is showing up, right? It's our players and our fans. And without them playing League of Legends, without them showing up, we don't have a product. Um, you know, we can think esports is amazing, but we make most of our money by regular people playing our video game uh, all around the world, right? So if that that is absolutely a humbling thing for us, and that's why we always try to put player first. But when we've gotten into the city selection process, you know, our our mindset is not to just walk into a city, say thank you very much, put up something for a weekend, and leave, right? Again, going back to a little bit on the publisher side and the fan side, we obviously know where we have pockets of you know large player bases, and then where they will go and what they like to do. We also know by tracking Reddit exactly where everyone wants us to be at every single time of the year. Um, but what we've really done is gone in, we work with those uh, local communities, we work with the sports commissions, we will work with the government agencies, and then we'll go identify different venues that we want to be at. Now, sometimes the venues we're going to are professional sports venues, uh, sometimes they're collegiate sports venues, so timing of the year also is where we have to you know, play out how that's going to work logistically. Um, but at the end of the day, whenever we go to a city, we want to leave by leaving a positive mark on that. Not just for the people who showed up, but we want to go and like leave a solid impression and come out. When we were in Detroit, Rocket Mortgage was our partner. Rocket Mortgage and Bedrock obviously has a pretty large connection into everything that's going on. But it wasn't just us saying, hey, Rocket Mortgage, we're going to throw your logo all over everything and we're going to do this. Isn't super exciting and take a look at the media investment. It was them saying, we're actually going to do our own marketing. We're gonna put up out of home boards. They pretty much built like an entire yellow brick road, like from the airport to downtown to Little Caesars Arena for us. And they obviously have some of those connections, but it was also them saying, here's what we want to do. Here's how we're going to activate the community. So it really needs to be a sense of like both parties investing together. And when you do that, it's successful. If it's just one saying, I'm gonna come in and do this thing and I'm gone and I'll never see you again, that you just, you lose all value. Is it about time to open it up for questions or? Hi, uh, name's Kay. I don't know if this is a short question actually, <laughs> um, but I think the question is about the longevity in general. So esports athletes, their lifespan is shorter even compared to the traditional sports. But that question also applies in general to 
all three different kinds of organizations that you guys are representing. The great thing about game is that there's a game for everyone, but that also means you have to choose what's demanding or deserving of your attention. So for example, DreamHack choosing what kind of sports games to host, Misfit deciding what kind of athletes and which games to include, and Riot Games is more existential. Try hard as you might, and you've been doing well, but eventually the people will look for other things. You try to add more contents, but the consumption rate of those contents are faster than anything that you've seen. It's not tennis, where it's been in existence for hundreds of years. 25 years of DreamHack, it's long, but it's still less than a lifespan. So how do you guys approach this question? And I think I know that you don't really have an answer, but I just want to hear your thoughts. I mean, it's, it's easy for us to dream hack because we're, we're, game, we're game and publisher agnostic, right? Um, it's not one of those things where, you know, we only do one game, and if for whatever reason that player base leaves, well, we just can't do events anymore. I mean, we at our shows have typically at least five to seven main stages. We, our show coming up in Atlanta is going to have eight. Anaheim's looking to have 10 to 12, right? All of different games and different types of games that are happening. So for us, it's not really a big deal. We just kind of go with the times. We have a couple of games that we know are more centric to our brand, but we know that the taste and the, uh, the basically the consumer experience is always changing. And I think that we try to really get ahead of that curve as best as we can as well. You know, it means not always having the biggest tournament right away for the newest game, but just, you know, getting your feet wet a little bit and seeing what works out. Because at the end of the day, I think that what makes an eSport an eSport is not us telling you that it's an eSport, but at the end of the day, it really is the people and the players actually playing the game saying, we want this to be this. Yeah, I mean, we, we always talk about League of Legends being a multi-generational sport, right? We, we are lucky enough or blessed enough that it's been the most popular game in the world for the last nine and a half years, right? Our 10-year anniversary is now. Uh, we have 8 million people concurrently streaming the game every single day globally, right? Which is more than the next nine titles and all added together. So for us, with the investment that we've made, like we, we know that this is where we're going to go. We are definitely going to be continuing to double down on it. But... I was asked actually a week ago, like, hey, what are the five titles that'll be, a, you know, that'll be esports in, in the next 25 years? And if you look at that, it's not that there's one single title to rule them all, like a Lord of the Rings reference, right? It is, it is literally something where how many traditional sports exist now, right? There's basketball, baseball, football, badminton, tennis, you name it, there are people playing it because they're very passionate about that. And I don't necessarily think that you're going to need to find one title, that'll be the only eSport. People are passionate about these elements. They're going to continue to, to do it. Um, you know, we joke all the time as a single publisher, like, we will put the S in Riot Games. Like, we'll have more titles. Like, we will. But all of our employees work on <laughs> League of Legends. And they have for since we, since we launched ourselves. So I, they're, you know, I think the only other thing I'd, I'd mention, any new, any new thing that happens, right? People are like, oh, where's it gonna be in 45 years? No one knows. When the, N the NFL started, no one thought this would be 100 year. I mean, I'm sure if there was one person, they're no longer alive. Like, they were playing with leather helmets, for God's sake. Like, no one ever thinks that 
this is where you're going to be 65 years from now. The NBA went through a whole massive process, right? I mean, it wasn't really until the early 90s when things massively took off for them, when they started investing in storytelling and brand building and Jordan and Magic and Bird and all the rest of that. So I think this is where the evolution of just sport comes from. And you're going to see people, again, to the point that was just made, you don't make a title and call it an eSport. The community is what drives that. And if the community is always ahead of you and you're trying to catch up, that's where you see the success because people are always like, come on, like, let's do more. And you're like, no, that costs a lot of money. Like, let's take a step back. Um, anyway. There you have it. That was the panel discussing investment partnerships and growth opportunities in esports. As I said, great discussion there. Some really good advice for brands looking to work in the esports industry. Um, and also some of the benefits there, obviously much more an accessible price point, um, really kind of, I think the metrics, that's one of the big takeaways that I get whenever I talk to someone about uh, brands and, and even traditional sports teams getting involved in esports is the metrics that it provides is incredible in terms of what you can get off a, off a stream, what you, you can get off a, a player interacting, a fan interacting on the side. And, and also just the fans are, are absolutely rabid. There's just... To, to something about esports fans that are the committed ones are very very engaged there so uh interesting stuff we've i'll put in the show notes a few more um episodes around esports that might be of interest um that we've had over the last few weeks uh, as i said sportstechfeed.com great place for all the previous episodes and show notes if you've got any questions you can reach out to me on there and we'll see you next week